0: Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question, in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton. To get notices of our new Bible examination programs, Go to our website, whtt.org, and enter your email address in the subscribe to WHTT box on the right-hand side of the website. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Bible examination, we're continuing in our study of Hebrews. We're in chapter 11, and we'll be starting at verse 13. And as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. I'm going to ask Chuck to recite a, it's kind of a, it's a very short prayer, but I think it's very, very powerful. Chuck?
1: Okay. Uh, this comes from a friend. I didn't write it myself. Father, uh, help us to see the true you in the character and in the nature of Jesus Christ. Help us to get rid of any other impressions of God except those revealed in Jesus Christ. Let us be people of resurrection, people of hope, People of peace.
0: Amen. Thank you. Welcome, Mark.
2: Well, thank you. It's good to be back. Other one, we've been looking at the letter to the Hebrews. before we started our recording. We had a, a brief discussion on uh, the value of the Old Testament to modern day Christians. And uh, I'll remind everyone that. Our writer here is using nothing but the Old Testament as his uh, source for his arguments in this letter about the superiority of Christ and his new age and his new covenant and his new spiritual city. In fact, uh, in the last paragraph that we looked at, we saw a key verse 10 in chapter 11 that tells us that Abraham looked forward to the city which has true foundations, the city of which God is the architect and builder. Obviously a spiritual city, and this, of course, contradicts all of the different people of all different sects, denominations, etc., who are looking forward to some physical kingdom in physical
1: Jerusalem.
2: Abraham was looking past that to a spiritual city of which God is the architect and builder. We're continuing on now, beginning in verse 13 through 16.
1: All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them.
2: All right, thank you. So, indeed, if we had any doubt that this city Abraham looked for was a spiritual city, Here we're told point blank that the homeland that all of the patriarchs in the Old Testament longed for was a heavenly or spiritual one. Those terms are basically synonymous. A homeland of the spiritual realm, not of the physical realm. These heroes that we looked at, all had great confidence in the reality of the unseen things of the spiritual realm, which includes God himself. As Chuck prayed, we, we only know the father by interacting with the son. The son bridged the gap between the spiritual realm and the physical realm became Emmanuel or God with us here in the physical realm for a, brief time the theme of being a pilgrim or a stranger on earth is commonly repeated it has been used in a number of hymns and songs in the last couple of hundred years that are uh, still sung in in lots of different churches that don't you know use rock and roll bands or whatnot. i guess there's a few churches like that left But they were in the physical land that God had promised, and yet they considered themselves strangers and pilgrims while they were there on that land. The word earth in verse 13 is probably better translated the land rather than the earth. It it doesn't really mean the planet earth, a sphere revolving in space, but it, it talks about the land as opposed to the sea and in context, a lot of times it is talking about the land of Palestine. If the land of Palestine was not really what they were looking for, it kind of betrays those who use the promises made to these patriarchs as their justification for stealing a land in Palestine from the rightful owners. That's a whole nother subject, but it's still true. Those who have attained to this spiritual homeland, I would contend, are no longer aliens and pilgrims uh, in that land. And I think the idea that we are strangers and pilgrims as long as we are physically alive on the earth is a little bit misguided and would contribute to the tendency to uh, abandon everything that's going on here Why worry about the Palestinian people or the injustices inflicted by war makers all over the world? Because after all, we're just strangers here. We're just passing through and our true home is in heaven. This has been all too popular amongst the non-dispensational churches and I believe has led to the moral collapse of our culture In fact, if we are part of the spiritual Jerusalem, which Jesus Christ inaugurated, he being the chief cornerstone and the apostles being the twelve foundations, he being the door to it, we being the living stones that built it up, then we are home if we are in Christ, who is this living city and is this better homeland. And we are home, and he has given us... Work to do, and we'll find that stated explicitly a little bit later on in this letter. We weren't saved by the redemptive work of Christ just because God thought it was a good idea or maybe we deserved it. It had nothing to do with that. We were saved to fulfill God's eternal purpose of creating this better homeland, creating a city set on a hill creating a peculiar people for his possession, who could be the light of the world. And so we are saved to serve, we are saved to work, to do the good works that God prepared for us from before the foundation of the earth, that we would walk in them, to paraphrase one of Paul's letters. So, if we are home in Christ, we are no longer the pilgrims that these patriarchs were, because Christ had not yet come, we are home in Christ and we have a lot of work to do. We have this better homeland, a heavenly homeland. We don't have to wait until we die to experience it. God is not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared a city for them. And this city spans the spiritual and the physical realm, just as Christ himself did in his physical body. Now he does it in his spiritual body, the body of all believers, which uh, hopefully many of us are part of. And also those righteous remnant of God's people throughout the centuries, even though they have physically departed from us, they are still joined to us in Christ in this eternal Spiritual body. So these patriarchs listed here in chapter 11 now are part of the same city that we are, the heavenly Jerusalem. And that's a, I mean, that should be kind of an comforting and exciting thought.
1: Mark, that is a very comforting, exciting thought. And it's one that you don't hear people talk about very much that you are actually in
2: your spiritual life now, whether you know it or not then it started going on, is really worth repeating, if I understand you correctly. Believe me, it's worth repeating. In our little church in New Mexico, we were talking about this as we wrapped up the letter to the Hebrews on Sunday, and one of my dear friends there, she said, well, it's almost like I've had two Jesuses, you know, my whole life. The one that went away and we're waiting for him to come back in a physical body, and then the other one that's supposed to live inside me. But if you're thinking all the time about the one who went away and is coming back, you can't focus on the true spiritual Jesus who lives inside of us. And I thought her point, you know, was excellent as well.
1: That is an excellent point.
2: But we were saved to be the dwelling place of God on earth, to be the temple of the living God. And we are saved to be his hands and his feet, wipe the tears, people are suffering, and to do all those good works. But yet we are joined with those who have already passed on and are in some apparent state of greater restfulness. But unfortunately, too many Christians think that they just have to sit in a pew, stare at the back of somebody's head, listen to a sermon once a week, and They've got it made. They just got to hang on until they physically die so they can experience the kingdom of God. Well, anyway, we we have.
0: A <laughs> a well, I might add Mark a quotation. I don't know who said that, but those Christians that are focused on being heaven bound are generally no earthly good.
2: Well, that is an excellent way to say it. And to me, that tells you what's wrong with America right there. The rapture cult people the dispensation Zionists or the the other futurists who are just sitting around waiting to die and they don't feel any sense of responsibility to do anything except put money in the plate, make sure their church has a fancy building and a six-figure salaried Ph.D. preacher. I know that's kind of a harsh generalization, but (laughs) we will actually put you to work. I'm sure if you send an email to Tom or Chuck and say that you'd like to help out, they could think of uh, hundreds of different things that you could do to help us enact God's justice uh, in the world today, and it's it's just amazing how much can be done by just a few people who understand that with Christ living in you, you have unlimited spiritual power, and you can undo all of the forces and strength of evil that might seem unassailable, you know, just from a human standpoint. It's amazing what a few determined zealous Christians can do to set things right in this world. But we might study the book of Job one of these times, (laughs) where you get an example of what the most righteous man who ever walked on the planet spent his time doing. It's kind of an interesting Little study there, okay, but anyway, back to where we're at here. let's read verses seventeen through twenty two please
1: okay, well I, I was just wanted to mention at the very last part of that in verse sixteen it says, because they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them, and uh, that's kind of interesting that God would be ashamed of us in other instances, of course, but but here he's not ashamed because they're they're longing for that heavenly city that God had promised, point there. Well,
2: I think it's important, and I think it's understanding the importance of David, who was a man after God's own heart. I believe that that longing for this city describes David and describes that idea of being a man after God's own heart. And he was flawed just like these patriarchs, but yet God is not ashamed to be called their God, and he's not ashamed to be called the God of David, because they were excited about the things that God was excited about, which is the heavenly Zion, the new Jerusalem, which of course is how the whole Bible wraps up with an enormous climax there at the end of Revelation. Revelation. So these are all really good points. And he's not ashamed that even though they were flawed humans, they've been cleansed by the blood of Christ so that they could become stones in this heavenly Jerusalem. And we have the same opportunity that they
1: did. Excellent corollary. Thank you. Okay, so I'll go ahead and read 17 through 22. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons, and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. Great, thank you very much.
2: All right, so this paragraph starts off with what is commonly called the binding of Isaac. This is a, a very common decorative theme in uh, Jewish synagogues throughout the centuries. They, They tend to go back to this story of the binding of Isaac, although maybe they're like Chuck. They don't see any similarity between Old Testament stories and Jesus Christ. But Christians normally see a strong image of Jesus Christ in this story of the binding of Isaac, where Abraham had enough confidence in God that he was willing to sacrifice the son that he had waited almost a lifetime for. He was willing to slay him physically because he had confidence that God could raise him from the dead. And we're even told here in verse 19 that this was a figure or a parabolic teaching. And we see Christ in that. And Abraham considered Isaac as dead. I mean, he drove the knife into his son, but was stayed by God. And so, as far as Abraham was concerned, he received Isaac back from the dead. Jacob and Esau are mentioned here. They are also types, because Esau deserved the inheritance, just as physical Israel deserved the inheritance, uh, which was the kingdom of God, the same city we were just talking about, But he sold his birthright for a mess of pottage, and the birthright passed from Esau the older son to Jacob the younger son, and I believe this is another parabolic teaching showing that the kingdom would pass from Israel to the Gentiles or to all the non Judean peoples, which of course did happen in the days of the apostles and Jacob did kind of the same thing. He blessed the two sons of Joseph and gave the blessing to the younger son, Ephraim, instead of the older son, Manasseh, and Ephraim became the most populous of all of the 12 tribes of Israel, to the point where the entire northern kingdom of 10 nominal tribes is referred to as Ephraim in many of the prophetic writings. All of these look forward to the fact that Judah, who should have inherited the kingdom of God, would lose it in their last days. And the final story, Joseph, when his end was near, mentioned the exodus of the people of Israel. And, of course, this is when we looked at the book of Acts. We saw that the apostles and the early Christians saw the exodus as a parabolic teaching of how God's righteous remnant would be pulled out of old physical Israel before physical Israel would be utterly and completely destroyed by God. Even though Joseph missed that first exodus, he wanted to make sure that his bones went along with it, at least symbolically. The Israelites coming up out of Egypt represents the believer's leaving the bondage of sin, and they passed through the Red Sea, which is a figure of baptism. So you can rise up out of the water into a new life on the other side, rising up into a new life. Joseph wanted to participate in that physically in a certain sense, so he sent his bones along with the Israelites as they went through that departure out of Egypt. And as many scholars have noted that this paragraph is not just talking about Moses and the Exodus, but is also fitting into that the final liberation of Israel by the hand of the second Redeemer of Israel, Jesus Christ. Moses, of course, being the first Redeemer of Israel and a picture, again, of Christ. And he happens to be our next story. Well, let's read uh, verses 23 through 28, please.
1: By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw that he was no ordinary child. They were not afraid of the king's eating. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell, after the army had marched around them for seven days. And by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Great, thank you very much.
2: All right, so Moses is one of the great characters of the Old Testament, and his life was managed by God's providence. He was uh, spared from the king's infanticide edict that all the male Hebrews would be put to death His parents defied the king's order, and Moses' life was spared, and then he was adopted into the household of Pharaoh, the supreme ruler of Egypt. But by God's providence, his own mother was allowed to be his nursemaid, and she probably poisoned his mind. She must have had an overpowering confidence in their God, Yahweh, and must have instilled that in her son as she helped to raise him. When he grew up, he renounced his association with Pharaoh's household and tried to liberate the people of Israel using his own judgment. But God had other plans and sent him away for 40 years. He was in the prime of life when he first tried and failed, but God sent him been to exile in the wilderness of Sinai and or Arabia for 40 years so that he was an old man when God appeared to him again and sent him back. And that time he couldn't rely on his own strength. He had to rely on God as his strength, God working through him. And that worked a lot better. It's an entire study in itself to look at the parallels between Moses the Redeemer of God's people, and Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of God's people. Now, our writer sticks his neck out somewhat in verse 26 because he uses the word uh, Messiah there. He reckoned the stigma attaching to the Messiah to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. The title of Messiah is basically used as a synonym for Israel, Christ in some of your translations, but both mean the anointed one. But the Son of God is used as a synonym for Israel, and this goes back to that imagery that if we are in Christ, we are part of his city, the new Jerusalem. If we are in Christ, we are part of his body. He is our head. The two shall be one flesh. They're one and the same. And our proper name as God's people is Israel, church, assembly of God. Those are all common nouns describing God's people but the proper name for God's people is Israel and this of course has nothing to do with the modern day physical government calling itself Israel in the Middle East. This is the spiritual Israel that was reconstituted in the first century by the apostles carrying out the commands of Jesus Christ as described in the book of Acts and we have lots of recorded studies that go through that whole process of God restoring Israel to what she was supposed to be. So our writer plugs Christ or Messiah in as a synonym for Israel. That's because the two are one in God's mind. And it's a little difficult for most of us to get around. We tend to have a church-centric view, not an Israel-centric view. And the You know, the dispensationalists and the Zionists have taken God's name and used it in vain. (laughs) And how in vain have they used it? Well, we could go on and on, but we won't. All right. He wanted to be attached to God's people, Israel, because this was God's higher purpose. This was of greater value to him than all the treasures of Egypt. He kept his eyes fixed on the reward, which, again, I would contend is that spiritual city that God always intended to build. He abandoned Egypt without looking back. It was not because he was afraid of physical harm, imprisonment, or death. He persevered because he saw the invisible one, Jesus Christ. And then uh, he instituted the Passover. The Passover is another Old Testament story that teaches us about Jesus Christ. It was a physical thing enacted out with physical blood, but it was trying to teach us the spiritual truths of Christ's sacrifice, the blood on the threshold allowing the, God's destroyer to pass over. And, of course, those who have entered into the door, which is Christ, by the sacrifice of his blood, we become partakers of his eternal nature and his eternal life. And the destroyer, which is death, passes over us. I hear a lot of Christians talk about, we hope we go to heaven when we die, but this is not the way the Bible describes it. If you have entered into Christ, if you have become part of his body, you have attained that eternal nature, and death cannot harm you. Those who believe in me can never die, Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John. And so you need to have the confidence of that fact as these patriarchs did that are described here in this chapter of Hebrews. And if we had confidence in the saving power of Christ's blood, again, just a tiny number of us would be virtually unstoppable in trying to demonstrate the sovereignty of God's kingdom over the affairs of men today. It's a very uh, strong argument to give to our many Jewish friends, some of whom I was with last night. I've never presented to them that Jesus is the Passover in their time. They don't need to put blood on the door on that day. Well, it's certainly true. Uh, I'm sure there are a few who uh, might be receptive, but... It seems to be a tough audience to uh, yeah. try to reach generally, yeah.
1: But that is an interesting argument.
2: Well, again, I like Alfred Edersheim's books that were written in the 1880s. He was raised in a Jewish family in Vienna, and then he, he wrote all these books about Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of all of God's promises to Israel. And the new editions that Baker House has, they have these great illustrations showing the. Passover meal of a Jewish family and it's a bone on a plate. <laughs> the way Ersheim describes it, he says, even their rituals today show that it's a completely dead religion. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Edersheim, of course, even though he was Jewish, he is an anti-Semite. And if you quote him or read from him, you know, you are probably an anti-Semite too. So anyway, it's... Mm-hmm. Uh, He's looking down, grinning, I guess, from the spiritual realm, and he probably thinks that's hilarious that people are calling him an anti-Semite. The writer of this whole letter, and we see these little tidbits he's thrown in in this passage as well, in his mind, the invisible order, the spiritual realm, is the real and permanent thing, and The visible things that were still in existence when he wrote this letter, like the temple in Jerusalem and the high priest and the bloody sacrifices and the physical wars and all that, those were transient. They were on their way out, and he's writing with absolute confidence that the unseen spiritual things are what God really wanted all along and that they will never pass away, but anything physical that you might put your confidence in, will pass away. And so I think it's a great example for us and a, really a challenge thrown out to us. You know, can we really put our confidence in God who we can't see or touch or taste with any of our physical senses to the extent that these heroes described here in Chapter 11 could and did do that. The crossing of the Red Sea is mentioned next. It's the sequel to the Passover. Of course, they all got to leave Egypt because of the plague of destruction that swept across Egypt and passed over the Israelites. But then the Pharaoh uh, changed his mind and decided to chase them uh, right down to the, uh, to the Red Sea. The sea opened up. The Israelites walked across on dry land, and then when the Egyptian army went in, they were uh, swallowed up. There's a shallow, like almost a land bridge that's just barely submerged, connecting the Sinai Peninsula to uh, Saudi Arabia on the other side. And, you know, in the satellite photos, you can even see it. The water's a different color because the water is so shallow there over this little area. And there's actually a huge canyon that cuts through the Sinai Peninsula that empties out right there and and that hidden bridge land bridge is kind of the delta of that ravine and there's a, this guy he's passed on now but he was a nurse and he spent all of his vacation time and all of his money going over finding biblical sites in the middle east he and his son dove in this area and they found all of these things that look like chariot wheels that are now coral reefs with stuff growing all over them. And the world has kind of laughed him to scorn. They actually got arrested by the government of Saudi Arabia and were lucky to get out alive. <laughs> of their, they, were, they were looking for where Mount Sinai was on the other side. But anyway, if you're interested in that kind of thing, I'm sure you can find some of those videos on the uh, Internet. I don't believe this was a mythological story, but I believe that this actually did happen where the Egyptian army was swallowed up by the waters and drowned there in the sea. And hopefully there really is that evidence over there. It's just that the governments over there aren't too eager for people to uh, explore and discover things like this for whatever reason. Then we kind of skip over 40 years here. Which is interesting because, you know, we're going through a catalog of the heroes of the faithful. And for 40 years, the Israelites were so unfaithful, they had no confidence at all in God. And so God cursed them to wander around in the desert until they all dropped dead. And they did. (laughs) They all dropped dead, except for uh, Joshua and Caleb, who did have confidence in God and then a new generation rose up who actually got to enter into the promised land and the first act when they did that was to conquer jericho and they did it you know by uh, setting up huge catapults and undermining the walls with explosive no i'm just kidding they <laughs> they did a the crazy stupid thing they they marched around the walls of the city Seven days in a row, and then they blew trumpets, and when they did, the walls fell down. And this is a great thing for uh, Bible class teachers to uh, do in their class because the kids love acting this out. It's a lot better than sitting in a pew staring at the back of somebody's head. They get, you know, little trumpets and they walk around and then they blow them and then they knock the walls over. My wife did this uh, a few months ago, and the kids loved it. This was a Canaanite city, people who were not uh, part of God's Israel at that time. And yet uh, Rahab, a harlot, an innkeeper, it's kind of a vague distinction in, in those cultures at that time. She helped the spies from Israel to evade the authorities who were frantically searching for them and helped them get down through the wall, lowered them down where they could get away. And in return, she and her family were all spared when the city fell and all the inhabitants were slaughtered. Uh, she was spared, and she actually became a uh, direct antecedent of Christ, a lineage and David, the king, from what we can tell from the genealogies. And so she serves as a little example that even though God was using the physical nation of Israel on a temporary basis to bring about his purpose, that ultimately he intended to bring in all peoples from all nations who wanted to be a part of what God was doing. And Rahab wanted to be part of what god was doing at that time and again she may have had some moral issues but so did the patriarch so did david and so do most of us
1: here here pastor you're going too far <laughs> <laughs> going
2: too far yeah I was
1: gonna say mark these last five people they're talking about here it's interesting there's a life and death claim there you know by faith you have life and without the faith it's death you know moses was the edict was that kids would all be killed and and then uh moses fled without fear of death his alternative was being killed for the murder and then uh, the faith of the people who passed through the red sea the people who didn't have the faith were drowned faith of the marchers and then the people inside were all it's just an interesting thing there and rahab you know, she wasn't killed, but those were disobedient either. Uh, I don't know if that means anything here, but I'm just kind of noticing that in the last five verses here, But faith gives you life. Well, I,
2: I think that's a great observation, because that's exactly what the writer is trying to get the audience to see. They are considering renouncing Christ by default, by just not talking about him anymore and putting their hopes On resuming their roles as good members of the Judean synagogue community where they live placing their hope in the physical priesthood, the physical temple and and so on and so forth and our writer has been trying to make the point that it is a life and death matter that those who live by faith live and those who have no confidence in those unseen things of God will die and he's alluded that that's imminent at a couple of points in the letter. So I think that's a great, great observation. We've gone a little over time here, but we can probably break here and pick back up at
0: verse 32 next time. Thanks for this lively lesson today.